Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, the book of Romans chapter 9. We continue in our sermon series from Paul's letter to the church located in the capital city, the book called Romans. Last week, we, we began to address this most difficult, theologically rich section, Romans 9, 10, and 11. We approached it like eating an Oreo, and last week we started with that cream-filled sinner that if we confess Jesus as Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised from the dead, we shall be saved, and whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. By far the most delicious part in this section to devour. But just like eating an Oreo, after you finish that cream-filled center, you've got to go back to the somewhat drier chocolate wafers, and that's where we find ourselves today. Today's sermon will be more theologically dense than normal. In fact, I would suggest you go and look at it online, print it off, read 9, 10, 11 again. You're going to take a few times to go through it. But to do justice to Paul's argument in 9, 10, 11, we cannot and will not skirt the weightier issues. Those who ordinarily like to be entertained by sermons, this would be a good week for you to take a nap. In fact, you might want to go ahead and start. Night, night, we'll see you next week. <laughs> the reasons we've gone through Romans chapter by chapter is we want to understand what Paul is saying to the church. We want to put what he's saying in the context of this overall letter. Sermons that are just cherry-picked, using a passage in Romans here and a passage in Romans there, well, they fail to reveal the true meaning of, of Paul's message here. There is a trend in contemporary reading of Scripture to put on 16th century glasses when reading Romans. To be sure, what the Reformed theologians have to say is important, and I encourage you to read them as I do. But you've got to remember that their outlook didn't come but a millennium and a half, 1,500 years after Paul wrote this letter. Today, I want you to take off your 16th century glasses and put on your first century glasses to read a first century document from a first century writer named Paul. We need to understand Romans 9, 10, and 11 in the context of Paul's message to the church in Rome, not so much the reformers' message to 16th century Europe. Well, let's go back to Romans chapter 1. Let's go to the very heart of the whole thing, Romans 1, 16 through 17. What is the overall message in this book? You have to read 9, 10, and 11 in regard to the overall message. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. The central message of Romans is a gospel. The story about Messiah Jesus. The grace of God to all who believe, not who work the law, but all who believe, yes, the Jew, and yes, the Gentile. The purpose of Romans 9, 10, and 11 is to reveal God's mercy being worked out to achieve the larger purpose of salvation, both for the Jew and for the Gentile. 
When people read our present passage, Romans 9, 10, 11, out of context, they miss the meaning altogether. For example, someone might come to 9.13 and read a passage, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, and point to individual predestination that God willy-nilly sends one to heaven and another to hell. The problem is this passage has nothing to do about individual salvation or assignment to eternal heaven or eternal hell. On the other extreme, someone might point to Romans 11.32 and read it out of context. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he might show mercy to all. And the liberal reader then says, oh, everybody's saved in the end. It's universalism. And that would be wrong too. In fact, either way you cherry pick the passage is the wrong way to approach it. You must read it in the context of the book of Romans and specifically in the context of chapter 10 we looked at last week. Well, the cream filling in chapter 10 is the theological center of this section. The key theological ideas are right there in the middle of Paul's rhetorical flow. The key idea is in 10.4 where we read, For Christ in the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul is saying the law is not to be denied, but the law is actually fulfilled in Christ himself. And for whom is the law fulfilled? both Jew and Gentile, everyone who believes. And then that central verse in 10:9, if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. There it is, Jew or Gentile. All find salvation the exact same way. There is not one path to glory for the Jew and another path for the Gentile. That's heresy. All get there by believing Jesus is Lord. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that he was crucified and resurrected, the only path of salvation for anybody. For 1013, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever means Jew or Gentile. Whoever says Jesus is Lord, meaning he is the crucified and resurrected Messiah, we find salvation regardless of our own ethnic heritage. Having seen that Christ filled sinner in 10, the whosoever passage, well, let's go to the end of the book. Turn over the end of this section. Turn over to chapter 11, verse 32, the part that, that Trevor read for us just a moment ago. In this section, we learn verse 32, 11, 32, God through the law has shut up everyone to disobedience through the law in order that God might be able to show mercy to everyone who believes. And Paul reminds us in verse 34 that none of us really knows the mind of the Lord. And verse 33, how unsearchable and how God's judgments, how unfathomable are his ways. There are many folks who are afraid to leave a little mystery when it comes to God's sovereignty. I'm not afraid to call it a mystery. To try to penetrate every corner of the infinite sovereignty of God with your very finite mind is actually a recipe for ruin. For Paul himself is saying at the end of this very complex section, I've explained it to you the best that I can, but you need to know that God doesn't answer to you or to me. His purpose is grace, you know that, to Jew and Gentile. But don't be 
afraid to leave a little mystery uncovered, Paul encourages us. Mystery is so hard for people who insist on having all the answers. They prefer a bad answer over honest humility and uncertainty. But if you don't have to have a pat answer, then you have to have faith. There it is again. If there's no pat answer, then you have to have faith that God has worked out his sovereignty. Ah, faith. Paul brings us to faith again. We'll go back to chapter 9. Let's look at the, the chocolate wafer on top. Chapter 9 is basically broken down into two sections. The first section of chapter 9 is verses 1 through 5. And in verses 1 through 5, Paul is sorrowful that Israel has rejected her Messiah. Look at verse 2. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I wish that I myself were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons, and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. What Paul is saying is this, I'm a Jew. And Paul's own personal experience has been Israel's personal experience. As a Jew, Paul was obeying the law, doing the best that he could, trying to find his righteousness through law-keeping. In fact, not only was he an Israelite, he was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee. In fact, what Paul says is, I was on the road to Damascus. I was going the path of the law, and I saw the resurrected Christ and realized I had to go the path of faith. And notice verse 2, I have sorrow, I have grief in my heart that Israel has rejected her Messiah. Well, then the second section of chapter 9 begs a question. Look at verse 6. Does that mean that God's failed? If the Jews have rejected the Messiah, has God then failed? Look at verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all are Israel who are descended from Israel. Well, God has not failed. Having learned that Paul has lamented over the current unbelief of his kinfolk in verse 6, he's saying this. It's not like God's word has failed because some of the Jews have refused the Messiah. For not everyone who descends from the flesh is really Israel. That's not Israel in God's eyes. Some of the Jews were arguing something like this. If we don't have a place in God's salvation, then God has broken his promises to us. And God's word has failed. Paul responds by saying something like this. The unfaithfulness of some Jews does not call into question the reliability of God's promises. In chapter 3 and verse 3, he's already told us this. Chapter 3, verse 3. What then? If some Jews do not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. The majority of the Jews in Paul's day were unfaithful because they rejected the Messiah, God's Son. Nevertheless, we learn in this passage that God has preserved a remnant. Look over at verse 27 of chapter 9. It's not all of Israel who's saved, but the remnant. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel will be as the sands of the sea, it is a remnant that will be saved. A faithful portion of Israel. God has not failed. There's still a faithful portion of Israel who's recognized the Messiah, and others in Israel will in the future. 
Paul answers the Jews who claim that since God has chosen them from among the nations to be elect, that their election is irrevocable. Therefore, God must keep his promises to them even if they look to the law for salvation rather than looking to the Lord Jesus. Not so, Paul says. Paul's response reminds us that the ways that God works is a mystery. God constituted Israel by fulfilling the promise to Abraham. Notice what he says in this passage, only through Isaac. And then from the sons of Isaac, through choosing Jacob, the youngest son, over Esau, the oldest son. God shows mercy on whom God chooses to show mercy according to his purposes. He makes vessels destined for destruction and vessels destined for glory. Humans are God's creation and have no right to question his sovereignty manifested in his choices. God's not accountable to you, Paul's saying. You're accountable to God. Well, look at verse 8. That is, it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. The implication is that one's parentage, one's racial descent, a distinctive Jewish way of life, geographical borders do not describe who Israel is. In God's eyes, Israel is created not by blood and soul, but rather by the promise of God. And Abraham had eight sons. It is only through the one son, Isaac, that is the child of promise. His point is the only true Israel that exists is the one that God calls into being by promise and call. And simply tracing one's lineage back to Abraham does not confirm that one belongs to the children of the promise. It only confirms that one is Abraham's child according to the flesh, which isn't worth much, Paul is saying. Paul continues to show how all Israel is not really Israel. After saying that God chose only one of the sons of Abraham, Isaac, he had eight, he now cites that God chose only one of the twins born to Rebekah. And before the twins, verse 11, had done anything good or anything bad, God chose not the firstborn, but the secondborn. God decided, verse 13, it's Jacob, not Esau. Being a child of promise has nothing to do with one's works, what Esau or Jacob might do, but rather the purposes and the promises are God at hand. To say, verse 13, that God loves Jacob and hates Esau, it's a Semitic hyperbole. It's exaggeration. Of course, God loves both Jacob and Esau. It means in the working of the purposes of God, Jacob is chosen. Esau's rejection simply means that God did not intend to use Esau as the instrument of fulfilling God's purposes in history. It doesn't mean that he's excluded from Isaac's blessing. The writer of Hebrews says, To faith Isaac blessed both Jacob and Esau, despite selling his birthright. Central point of Romans 9, 15. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. The Jesus invent does not re-envision God in any way new at all, Paul is arguing to the Jews. Paul is presenting unpredictable mercy throughout Israel's history. 
God has always been unpredictable in his giving of mercy. And therefore now when all of a sudden God is giving mercy to the Gentiles, well, the Jews shouldn't be surprised. God's mercy has always been unpredictable. And the Gentiles they thought would be excluded are now included. Just like God chose one son, Abraham, and just like God chose one son of Isaac, God even used Pharaoh's disobedience for God's own glory. The point to ponder, verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. The question isn't whether Pharaoh was responsible for his disobedience or God was responsible for his hardened heart. That misses the point altogether. The point is God can use Pharaoh's rebellious heart to accomplish God's own good purposes. Pharaoh's rebellion allowed God to demonstrate God's power in redeeming his people and setting them free. And then in verse 20, he gives us another illustration about the potter and the clay. The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Paul is deflating the Jewish audacity here. Think they can dictate to God. Instead, he's saying it is God who dictates. Paul is maintaining that pots do not argue with the potter who made them about how they were made or for what purpose they were used. Therefore, God is absolutely free to say who God's people really are. The people of faith are the people of God. These statements, God loves Jacob and hates Esau, even before they're born or done anything good or bad, or God raised Pharaoh up and has mercy on whomever he chooses or hardens whomever he chooses, has nothing to do with anybody's arguing about individual predestination to salvation or damnation. This is not the rhetorical flow. It's about the purposes of God amongst the nations and people groups. God's divine purpose is how to show mercy to all the nations. The emphasis falls on Israel's corporate election. And well, all the terms used here are terms for groups and not individuals. My people, my remnant, the disobedient, or Israel. Individuals in this passage, like Jacob or Esau... Well, they represent the movement of God. They are agents for the movement of God and God's historical purposes. And God's plan is salvation for all who believe, both Jew and Gentile. What Paul is saying is this. God's not desperate. He doesn't put up a help-wanted sign and wait for applications. Rather, God, Pharaoh, whoever else, Jacob, raises up persons to achieve his divine objectives. For example, God used Pharaoh, well, to keep his people in captivity. But he also used Cyrus, the king of Persia in Isaiah 45, to release them from their Babylonian captivity. God's use of individuals does not make them simply puppets or take away their volition. It's a bigger mystery than that. It's God working out his purposes through our own choices. All of this operating of God is for the purpose of reclaiming his greatness and his power to show the riches of his glory, chapter 9, verse 23. Our basic problem is this. When we read a passage like Romans 9, 10, or 11, we read it anthropocentrically. 
We say, what does this have to do with me and, and my salvation? And that's the wrong way to read it. You are to read it theocentrically. What does this passage have to do with God and God's movement amongst the nations to provide mercy to all who would say Jesus is Lord? All who would confess him as Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. It's not about Jacob and Esau as individuals. It's about the role they play in God's drama of salvation history among the nations. The whole point of Israel's being elect, don't forget this, the whole reason that Israel was ever elect, the whole point of choosing Jacob over Esau was that Israel will be a light to the nations that salvation would reach the ends of the earth, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 42, Acts 13. Their election was never an exclusion of the other nations, but rather they were elected to be a light so that through the seed of Abraham, all the nations, through the Christ, all the nations would be, led, would be blessed. It was never to choose some and leave others out. It was to work out the rising and the falling of the nations and the people groups according to the purposes of God to all who believe that they might be saved, both Jew and Gentile. In fact, the key word in Romans 9, 10, 11 is the word mercy. 9, 15, mercy. 9, 18, mercy. And how does this whole section conclude? That all might have mercy. All might be shown mercy. God has shut up all to disobedience. They would receive not the works, but the mercy, the grace of God. Paul's point is to show that God's purpose is to save and that one can only be saved by the mercy, the grace of God. Paul is not deliberating about whether an individual person is predestined to heaven or hell. That's not even remotely connected to the argument in Romans 9, 10, and 11. He simply continues the theme of this letter. Salvation does not depend on human exertion or worthiness, but rather it depends on the merciful grace of God. His purpose is to show that Israel will never be saved by race alone, by being a fleshly descendant of Abraham, but Israel, like the Gentiles, will be saved by grace alone, being a believer in the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Christ. The whole passage is to argue that the unchosen, the Gentiles, can be part of the people of God. Those who are not my people are now my people. Look at 925. As he says in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people my people, and her who was not beloved my beloved. The once hated descendants of Esau are now called the children of the living God, precisely for the reason that Jacob and his descendants have always been and will ever be God's beloved because of the gracious and loving embrace of a merciful and sovereign God. Like Israel, their identity as God's people is determined not by works, but by the work of the one who calls. So then the question comes in verse 6. If God's word didn't fail... If his covenants and promises to ancient Israel, if his giving of the law, well, why is it the majority of the Jews have rejected their Messiah? Why is it that the very people through the promises of God who should have been ready for the coming of the Messiah, why have they turned their back on God's son? Paul is arguing that Israel's problems are rooted in the refusal to accept all the beliefs he said in chapters 1 through 8. That God reckons in righteous only those who have faith in Christ. 
Ethnic Israel cannot rest her future on her ethnicity, her God-given privileges. Israel can only be saved by confessing Jesus as Lord and believing that God raised him from the dead. Paul closes out chapter 9 by saying, those who weren't my people, the Gentiles, they're now my people, Hosea 3.23. And he reminds us in verse 27 of chapter 9, though they are the number of the sons of Israel are like the sands of the sea, it is a remnant, Isaiah 10.22, that will actually be saved. He closes out chapter 9 by asking this, how is it the Gentiles who weren't pursuing righteousness, verse 30, have arrived at righteousness? And how is it Israel, who was full force after the law, did not arrive at the end of the law? That is the Christ. It all comes back to faith, doesn't it? All comes back at the end of verse 30. Even the righteousness which is by faith. The Jews were trying to work out their obedience to the law. Therefore, verse 33, they stumbled over the cornerstone, the chief stone. They stumbled over the Christ. Chapter 10, the creamy center. If you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart, God raised from the dead, you will be saved. And whoever believes in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, then chapter 11, the bottom side or the Oreo. Now, chapter 11, ask a very important question. Look at verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Well, somebody's asking the question. Well, now you're letting in the Gentiles. Does that mean God has rejected his people because they haven't believed? May it never be, 11.1. Paul himself is an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, yes, from the tribe of Benjamin. God has not planned to sweep Israel into the dustbin, Paul's saying. God has preserved this remnant of believing Jews who have circumcised hearts, meaning they believe in Jesus. Salvation of Jew and Gentile is part of the mystery and purposes of God. God has used, chapter 11, he tells us, God has used ethnic Israel's unbelief to bring salvation to the Gentiles. Israel's hardening of the heart resulting in the saving message of the gospel spreading the Gentiles, scores of whom have rejected their idolatry and turned to a living and true God. Paul is arguing here that God's including the Gentiles and the people of God does not mean the Jews are excluded. In fact, God will, he tells us, verse 24, graft them back. It's a picture of a a root of an olive tree. And some of the branches have died. That is Israel, their unbelief. They're trying to go the way of the law. And God cuts off those branches. And then he takes a, a branch of the Gentiles and he grafts it in. And then he says to the Gentiles, don't be arrogant about your position. If you, a wild branch, could be grafted in, how much more a native branch, an Israelite branch, will come back to salvation and be grafted back in? Look at verse, verse 12, what he says. If the Jews' transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? And then we'll look what he says in verse 15. For if their rejection be the reconciliation of the world, then their acceptance will be life from the dead. Just think when Israel begins to profess Jesus Christ as Lord, if their disobedience brought the gospel to the Gentiles, how much more when they believe will it be rejoicing for everybody? 
May, maybe the branches have died. I call this the roots and the shoots. Maybe the branches have died, but the root, the remnant, is still there for ancient Israel. He begins chapter 11 by reminding us of Elijah. You remember Elijah after he had won against the prophets of Baal on Mount Horeb? How he went to the cave and he said to God, well, it's over. The Jews are disobedient and I'm the only one that's left. I am the only one that is faithful to you, Elijah says. And then God reminds Elijah, look at verse 4 of chapter 11. No, there are 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the Baal. The same way, there will be a believing remnant according to God's gracious choice. But again, it's God's grace, it's God's mercy, it's not works, it's not what Jacob or Esau have done. Rather, it's simply the mercy of God. Israel has suffered a loss in numbers and reduced to a believing remnant, verse 5 of chapter 11. She has lost the race to obtain righteousness because she has run down the road of the law. But it's not a catastrophic defeat. God will use it to bring the riches to the Gentiles, and then the Gentiles' faith will bring the Jews to jealousy, and they will be regrafted into the people of God. In chapter 11, verses 13 and 14, he addresses the Gentiles for the only, first and only time. Look at verse 13. But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. As much as then as I am apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. Paul is an apostle of the Gentiles, and he's not going to deny that call, but he's holding on to his own people, to ethnic Israel. This passage about roots and shoots makes clear that the root is God's covenant with Israel for all of us, and the wild branches of Gentiles have been grafted in, and if they can be grafted into glory, verse 24, how much more when ethnic Israel calls Jesus Lord? But Paul does not think. The Jews will get an automatic buy in judgment because of their election or for the sake of the patriarchs. In fact, this very passage begins with him grieving over their disbelief, 9, 1 through 3. But Paul's, God's love for the Gentiles does not diminish God's love for Israel. As if there were a limited supply of God's love to go around. The boundless love of God has embraced all humanity. The Jew first, our central passage, and also the Gentile. The first love that he had for Israel is not invalidated by his love for the Gentiles. He sums it all up by saying in verse 32, for God has shut up all to disobedience that he might show mercy to all. Mercy to all. Yes, the manifestations of God's election and mercy in history have happened in a way that no human could anticipate and few of us can actually appreciate. But now we see in a mirror dimly, we can barely make out what God has done in the past. It's hard to know what God's doing in the present. It's even harder to know what God will do in the future. But the end of the passage, verse 36, it is to bring glory to God. All things from him, through him, and to him are all things to God be the glory. The Queen's Gambit, and I'm not recommending it necessarily, has become Netflix's most watched scripted miniseries. An orphan child in this PG-13 uh, prodigy becomes a world champion chess player. It's a drama of chess strategy, of both making your move and knowing your opponent's choices. God, in the end, 
is the universe's champion chess player, able to bring the game to the victorious conclusion by outmaneuvering whatever moves that humans or Satan might make. Yes, God sometimes allows individuals or groups to rebel against him to bring about the greatest good for all. But the only way to salvation has always been and always will be to admit Jesus is Lord. It's not race alone, but grace alone that brings us to God's throne. You go ahead and move your chess piece however you choose because the master player God uses your every move for his own end game. Checkmate, it's a mystery. Let us pray. God, thank you for grafting us in. And thank you you've not forgotten your people Israel. Thank you that all your movements on the cosmic chessboard are to be able to show mercy to all who will say Jesus is Lord and believe in his crucifixion and resurrection. And God, may we be wise enough to leave some mysteries a mystery. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.